0: Uh, Scripture reading is from John 11, verses 17 through 37. All right, let's go. On his arrival, Jesus found that Lazarus had already been in the tomb for four days. Now, Bethany was less than two miles from Jerusalem, and many Jews had come to Martha and Mary to comfort them in the loss of their brother. When Martha heard that Jesus was coming, she went out to meet him, but Mary stayed at home. Lord, Martha said to Jesus, If you had been here, my brother would not have died. But I know that even now God will give you whatever you ask. Jesus said to her, Your brother will rise again. Martha answered, I know he will rise again in the resurrection at the last day. Jesus said to her, I am the resurrection and the life. The one who believes in me will live, even though they die. And whoever lives by believing in me will never die. Do you believe this? Yes, Lord, she replied. I believe that you are the Messiah, the Son of God, who is to come into the world. After she had said this, she went back and called her sister Mary aside. The teacher is here, she said, and is asking for you. When Mary heard this, she got up quickly and went to him. Now Jesus had not yet entered the village, but was still at the place where Martha had met him. And the Jews who had been with Mary in the house comforting her noticed how quickly she got up and went out. They followed followed her supposing she was going to the tomb to mourn there when mary reached the place where jesus was and saw him she fell at his feet and and said lord if you had been here my brother would not have died when jesus saw her weeping and the jews who had come along with her also weeping he was deeply moved in in spirit and troubled where have you laid him he asked come and see lord they replied jesus wept and the jews said see how he loved him but some of them said, could not he who opened the eyes of the blind man have kept this man from dying? <laughs> this
1: is part of Monty's uh, series he's been doing about sort of obstacles to faith and being able to give an answer for the hope that we have. So a major obstacle, I think, is, is sort of the problem of suffering um, and evil. And we've all experienced suffering kidney stones, um, loss in our lives. We've seen our loved ones go through it, which at times may be even harder. Um, this bride says, life is pain, Highness. Anyone who says differently is selling something, right? That can seem true. That can, it, it can be overwhelming, you know. I'm not selling anything today, but um, we've all, I think, at one time or another, probably wondered how could God allow this? Um, the classic question is is sometimes posed this way. So, how could an all-powerful, all-knowing, perfectly loving God um, allow the evil and the suffering that we see in this world? Um, a couple ways. One is to say that evil and suffering exists, therefore there must not be a God. Right? Another way to deal with it is to subtract from some of those divine attributes? Like, oh, well, maybe he's not really all powerful. Maybe he doesn't know everything. Or the scary one: maybe he's. Christians throughout history have sort of posited different ways of dealing with this, maintain sort of God's goodness better. All the way through my shirt. <laughs> all right. Is that better? All right. So, the, so the ways to deal with the question: There is no God. Um, maybe He's not all powerful. Maybe He's not all good. Um, but Christians have sort of through the his through the history of Christianity. Posited different what are called theodicies or ways of dealing with this question, ways that maintain you know God is an all-powerful God, perfectly good, but maybe rationalize the reason why He might allow suffering and evil to persist in our world. So we're going to talk about um, some of those theodicies, um, but this is a this is a major obstacle to faith for a lot of people. Um, people that I've known have had conversations about this with people who were Christians and, and have come across major doubts because of this issue, people who are not Christians because of this issue, or um, just people struggling with this question a lot. I think that's fairly common, and, that, and surveys um, sort of bear that out. The Barna Group did a survey in 2016 of about, um, I think, 3,000 Americans, and they, they identified this issue as the number one obstacle to faith for people. <clears throat> in their survey. And that number was even higher among the younger generations, the millennials, the gen zers. Um, so this issue is not going away by any means. It's actually becoming more prevalent. So like I said, this is part of money's sermons to try to be able to give a reason for the for the hope that we have. I'm going to talk about this issue a little bit today. Um, sort of daunting for me because we all have our own History of suffering, and we, we've dealt with that in different ways, and it can be a very sensitive topic. So, um, I'd like to, um, before we even get started here, pray a little bit just for some sensitivity um, as we as we jump into this. So, let's pray. Um, Father in heaven, I pray that you give me humility and sensitivity as we as we jump into this topic, and know that everyone here has um, their own experiences that they bring to the table, and. Um, Our own histories with suffering and and loss and grief and facing evil. I pray that you just be with us and um, only allow me to say the things that you would have me to say and to be sensitive and humble in this. It's in Jesus' name I pray. Right. So like I said, we we all sort of carry our own history. We all may have theodicies that sort of work for us, in a lot of instances. And, but we, we may also have our own questions. Given the chance to, to ask God face-to-face a question about suffering, we might all pose that question in slightly different ways, right? For some of us, it's, um, you know, God, why did you allow cancer? Why didn't you prevent that? For others, it's, you know, natural disasters like earthquakes and tsunamis that wipe out whole cities, thousands of people at a time. God, what's up with that? Um, For other people, it's sort of the the senseless evil that sort of surfaces sometimes. I think of like school shootings. God, why didn't you just intervene to stop that? You know, 9-11, things like that, the Holocaust. Um, So we we might all ask that question in different ways, but I think it's good for us to sort of come to terms with what questions we still have, what bothers us the most, what sort of gives us the most heartburn about this problem of of suffering. And I say that because um, when we find ourselves in conversations with folks about this issue, and this, like I said, it does, I think, come up a lot. I've, I've talked to several people about this Um, But when we find ourselves in conversations like this, I I tend to think that it's good to lead with vulnerability to show that, yes, I, I still have questions about this. And what that does when you're in a conversation with somebody is it puts you on the same side as them. You know, it's us. We're partners on a quest to find answers to this question. And so we're kind of on the same team. And that's a good place to be rather than in a debate with that person where we're opponents and this is what i believe no this is what i believe and does anyone really ever change their mind when it when it's that dynamic when it's a debate you really just end up digging your heels into your side of it more i think <clears throat> and this is a hard issue if if we're going to talk about how complex this issue really is today and and i don't think it's a good idea it doesn't do god any favors to to certainty when it comes to this. Um, I think we actually can do a lot of damage and be a little bit hypocritical when we act like we have it all figured out. And I've said this before, it's okay to have unanswered questions, right? That doesn't disqualify us from being a good Christian. In fact, and again, I may sound like a broken record because you've heard me say this before, if we're to define disciple based on the New Testament, a disciple is someone who has good questions and who takes those questions to Jesus for answers. Right? A disciple is not someone who has it all figured out and can dispense wisdom to the world at all times about every single thing. If we're defining disciple biblically, I think it's someone who has really thoughtful, deep, hard questions, and again, who takes those questions to Jesus for answers. And Jesus isn't always like Google. He doesn't give us the immediate answer right away, right? I think he likes to have us wrestle with it a little bit. There's value in the wrestling, in my experience. Over years and years of wrestling, we grow and we mature. Okay, so off, off of my soapbox here, but let's, let's jump into some, some common philosophies some common theologies surrounding this issue. Um, Some helpful categories here are moral evil versus natural evil. In philosophy, they tend to sort of put these two categories out when they are talking about the problem of evil. Uh, So moral evil would be like the the hateful things that we do to each other that cause suffering. So think, you know, anything from bullying to murder to um, genocide, really bad choices that we make and we inflict that suffering on one another. That's moral evil. Natural evil would be like the things we have no control over. So, nature just, you know, earthquake causes suffering. That's sort of what, what natural evil would be. Um, so, the first sort of theodicy, and remember, theodicy is a way of um, sort of offering an explanation of why there might be suffering in our world. So, theodicy number one, and this is probably the most common that you hear of, is what's called the free will defense. The free will defense says that, you know, God has granted us free will, real choices. We have the choice to make good decisions or bad decisions, and those bad decisions have consequences, real consequences that we have to deal with. Um, And so, you know, you might say that (laughs) there can be no true love. True love. uh, Princess Bride again. Sorry, popping in. Um, where was I? There can be no true love <laughs> without um, free will. That's what I'm saying. I got love for you, baby. <laughs> <laughs> um, so we have to have free will to actually actually love God. Um, this is this is a pretty strong theodicy. It has a lot of merit to it, I think. Um, but you might say it's, its weakness is it can explain sort of the moral evil aspect of this. You know, we have free will, so we have to deal with the consequences of inflicting evil on one another. But what about natural evil? So does, does free will explain natural evil? And I think Christians and, and Paul in the Bible m- make this causal tie between the choices that humanity has made, the sin that brings about the curse and sort of ties moral evil and sin to the curse the you know the fallen world if you ever heard somebody say we live in a fallen world they're making that causal tie between human choices human sin and and the brokenness of of nature and, and creation so um and the, you would use you know verses like romans eight twenty, where it talks about creation being in bondage to decay and, and hoping for the liberation and the revelation of the children of God to to sort of be liberated from that, that state. Um, but someone might ask, well, wasn't it God who pronounced that curse? Couldn't he just have not done that to creation? And there wouldn't be a curse. And I think that's sort of a valid point, so why did why did he do that? Um, and that might lead us to our second theodicy. Excuse me. Our second theodicy is, is sometimes called the soul-making theodicy. And that could be sort of summarized in, in sort of the idea that pressure creates diamonds, right? Um, the suffering and the, and the evil that we have to encounter in our world and face Brings about a maturity and a wisdom that God is hoping that we attain as humans. So that's maybe why He allows it. And so it would be supported by, um, you know, biblical um, theology in places like James chapter 1, verse 2, where it says, Consider it pure joy, my brothers and sisters, whenever you face trials of many kinds, because you know that um, the testing of your faith produces perseverance. Let perseverance finish its work, so that you may be mature and complete, not lacking anything. I think there's truth to that. There are other verses, um, just like that verse in James, that would seem to support the soul-making theodicy, or the soul-making defense of evil in our world. But sort of the weakness here is that we could say, well, sometimes... You know, suffering kills us before we have a chance to grow from it. So, you know, I'm dead. I can't learn anything from that. It's, it's the end of the story for me. And that's a valid point too. Um, and there's also things, I think if we think about it really hard, um, there's probably forms of suffering that we would say, no lesson worth learning, that I should have to, you know, go through that or anybody should have to go through certain forms of suffering. So, this theodicy couldn't explain every, every situation. Alright, so, <clears throat> we've got the free will defense, the soul-making theodicy, a third one I'll mention here, and these aren't the only ones, but um, something we hear a lot is sort of that spiritual evil is really to blame for all of this, right, um, I think people are fond of saying God doesn't cause suffering, it's, it's Satan, Satan's really to blame. Um, and this this is, again, this is supported by Scripture. Um, I mean, Jesus went around exercising demons from people that were, that were causing a lot of suffering, right? That was part of his mission, what he did in the world. It's all about that. And then verses like 1 John 3.8 where it says, the reason the Son of God appeared was to destroy the devil's work. Seems to be um, pretty valid that, you know, Satan is to blame for a lot of this. And you see this in Job, right? The story of Job at the beginning where Satan comes to God and says, you're just blessing Job because he's he's getting something out of this. Let me inflict some suffering on him. And so the Satan in the story does that. He's the one inflicting all of the bad things that, that happened to Job. But he doesn't do that without God's permission, right? God allows him to do that. And so there's this idea, especially in the Old Testament, in places like um, Lamentations 3, where it says, who can speak and have it happen if the Lord has not decreed it? Is it not from the mouth of the Most High that both calamities and good things come? What about an Exodus? Four, where Moses is sort of balking at going to Pharaoh. He's like, I, I'm slow of speech and tongue. God, send somebody else. And, and God directly says, Who gave human beings their mouths? Who makes them deaf or mute? Who gives them sight or makes them blind? Is it not I, the Lord? We could go really far down the rabbit hole with any one of these theodicies. I mean, we could talk about this for months and months and months, and people do. People have written, you know, there's libraries worth of books on this, and there are, there are other theodicies worth, I think, exploring, um, considering. I've tried to give sort of a, just a, maybe a simple overview of the landscape here, um, but it can get fairly deep and complex. And I pointed out sort of the strengths and the weaknesses of each one. That's not to like tear down our faith in these. I think they are valid. I think they are valid. They, they do explain suffering in some instances, but maybe not all. You know, Sometimes we don't know the reason. Sometimes it's one thing and not the other thing. And that same thing happens to somebody else, and it's a different reason. Um, so here's what I mean by that. The Bible says uh, God disciplines those he loves, right? But Jesus sort of chastises his disciples for going around assuming that every thing they encounter is because of some sin, right? They said, Who, who sinned, Lord? This man or his parents, that he was born blind? Jesus said, No, neither. It's sort of it's something else in this situation. So there are instances when, you know, it could be free will that's causing their suffering. There are instances when it could be um, that we need to mature, and we're, we're going through something in order to gain wisdom and maturity. It could be that Satan is the one inflicting suffering on us. Uh, it could be a, a complex web of multiple factors, right? That's when it gets really... It could be multiple things converging in space and time on you at one particular point, and, and who can decipher all of that? It gets really complex. It sort of seems like what Job is going through. You know, Job, at the end of the book, sort of says, God, come and explain yourself. And God does show up. And he asks Job all these really hard questions about, do you have any idea how, what it's like to run the universe? How, do, how does this work? How does this work? How does this work? And he sort of humbles Job. And I think the point of it is that he's saying, it's it's really complex, Job. It's maybe even beyond you. We, we sort of assume with this whole thing Endeavor that we could even fathom God's reasons. I mean, is that something we should assume that we could fully know the mind of God and all of, all of His intentions? Boils down to is trust, right? Do we trust that God might have a good reason? Has He given us reason to trust in our lives? When we think back at our lives and we see in retrospect the times that we've gone through things and the the things that God has done for us, has He given us reason to trust Him? I think, yeah, when I look at my life, I think, yeah, God's been there. God was there. I see God sort of working in this, looking back through time. And then, of course, the whole story of Jesus gives us a lot of reason to trust, right? <laughs> Some would say this whole, you know, this whole thing, how can there be a good God with so much evil in the world or so much suffering in the world? Maybe that's, maybe that's just a bad question. Maybe it's one of those questions like, that doesn't have an answer, like could God make a rock so big that he couldn't lift it up? Sort of like, maybe, maybe that's just the wrong question to be asking. Seems like we're sort of spinning our wheels when we get into the philosophy of this, kind of go round and round and round. A different question is, um, does God care about our suffering? Does, does he care? I think we can know the answer to that, right? He came into our world as Jesus, and he suffered right alongside of us. can't be that he doesn't care. He experienced the worst of you know, suffering and, and evil that... That the world has to offer so it's not that he created the world and he stands aloof off in heaven and doesn't understand what we're going through he he cares and he's right here and he's he's come into the world so it can't be that he doesn't when I, when I start to have doubts about this this whole thing um, and it makes a difference A lot of people have given up belief in God over this specific issue. And yes, it is a very, very difficult issue to deal with. Um, So you could could throw the baby out with the bathwater and say, well, God must not exist because there's so much evil and suffering in the world. But actually you're going to have other really difficult problems if that's the route you take, right? An atheist has a really hard time with the problem of good. Why is there so much good in the world? Why is, why is there morality? Where does morality come from? How can we even say something is good or evil without an outside source? Otherwise, it's just all human opinion, what we call good or evil, and that's very subjective. There, there's some sort of outside morality that's, that's built into all of us. So if you throw God out, and you take the atheistic worldview; you're really just exchanging one hard question for another hard question. You're not, you're, you're not off the hook, really, in my opinion. <clears throat> All right. A word here about sort of, you know, if you get into discussions like this, to sort of read the room. Um, I think there's times like at a funeral where it may be just totally inappropriate to be throwing theodicies out at people. Um, That's not the time. Those are times when, you know, we offer our presence, our love in a simple, quiet way, and we suffer with, right? We mourn with those who mourn. We weep with those who weep. And that's, what I see Jesus doing, I mean, that's our example, right? When Jesus is at the tomb of Lazarus, he, Jesus wept. That was my favorite verse as a kid. It was short, right? It's an easy one to memorize. But there's a lot, of, a lot of meaning packed into those two words. Jesus wept. God weeps? Even though he's about to raise him from the dead, he, he's at the tomb and he, he, he weeps. It's an appropriate response sometimes, especially if Jesus is doing it. Um, but I think we could take a page from his, his book and, and, and offer sort of shared mourning in certain <coughs> times when people are really in the throes of anguish and grief. Maybe they're asking that question of why but it's time for philosophizing um, <coughs> So the scripture reading today was, like I said, that story of Lazarus. But I had it intentionally sort of stop at the point right after Jesus is at the tomb and weeping before the resurrection. Um, because I think that's sort of symbolic of the time the time period that we're in as fo- followers of Jesus. I mean, we're, we're, we're between his first coming and the future resurrection, right? And that's, that is a time that is sometimes filled with weeping. So I think that's sort of metaphorical in a way. Um, That said, we do hope of a future where God will wipe every tear from our eyes. There will be no more death or mourning or crying or pain for the old order of things has passed away. That's from Revelation 21. That's, That's the hope that we look forward to in all of this. And I hope that in conversations when the problem of suffering comes up, that we're that we're able to share that hope. That's what the First Peter verse is talking about. First Peter three fifteen. This whole sermon series is based on be able to, to give an answer for the hope that you have. That's the hope that we have, right? Right now we live in a time of 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 weeping. There's a lot of stuff that's going on that is hard to explain, hard to fathom even. Maybe we can't fathom that. We know that it's not because God doesn't care. We trust that He does have a reason and He will rectify things someday. I think it's important to, you know, to bring that up, to not forget about our hope. And when we find ourselves in in conversations about this, that we would do it like, Peter, like First Peter says, with gentleness and respect, that's a huge part of this—to handle handle these conversations with gentleness and respect. And so, I hope by sort of surveying the philosophy, sort of talking about the theology of it, I hope that we are humbled in the fact that these these issues don't have simple answers. There's some complexity here. Um, I hope that you in some way feel a little bit more equipped to have these conversations because of this today. And I hope that again we, we're able to point people to the hope that we have. Because I think there's there's some consolation in that. Um, so as we close today, if 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 you're here today and you're doubting, struggling with this particular issue or Issue. if you're if you're really mad at God that's that's okay it, it's really helpful to talk that out though and I think our, our leadership here is more than willing to talk with you about that um, if you have you know more curiosity surrounding this this issue if you're looking for books to read and I'll, and I'll send out a follow-up email here I, th- I have some really cool resources that I want to share with y'all um, so I'll send out an email with those but Um, If you're really hurting today or if you need anything, if you want to take a step towards Jesus, um, you can do that today as we stand and sing. Come down to this, this front row here.